Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Y'all, you've been listening to Relatively Healthy for long enough now, and you've noticed some situations that have emerged more than once for specifically the women and or people with uteruses and or people with vaginas who come on this show and are brave enough to share their stories. It is that sometimes doctors don't know what the fuck and they have to go to multiple doctors. They feel like they're being gaslit sometimes. We have started touching on a very common theme, which is that People in the medical system are sometimes prone to doubting women's pain and symptoms and leading to misdiagnosis and leading to a lot of self-doubt. So this led me on a journey, also given my own experience with this, which is like a whole other topic. And like, I just from that believe we should ban all male doctors, but that's a whole other podcast. Anyway, this led me to the book Doing Harm which I saw, you know, at Skylight Books. And I was like, this is the book for me. It is about this phenomenon. And it takes uh, the reader through the whole history of why the medical system is not built around believing women's symptoms. And it goes through the history of hysteria and how those symptoms were treated. It goes through the way um, the medical system works and has inherent biases toward basically anyone who isn't a white man. And I love this book so much. So I reached out like a freak on Twitter to the author, Maya Dusenberry, who's also editor of uh, feministing.com, which is an amazing feminist website. And she was kind enough to come on. And I'm so, so grateful and excited because we have so much to discuss, especially based on the last few episodes, what we've been hearing. And she has so many awesome insights to provide about what we can do and what uh, the medical community can do to move forward and treat women better. So I hope you like it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Relatively Healthy. I'm Janie Stoller. And today our guest is such a phenomenal person and author and a wonderful feminist who we all need to know. Her name is Maya Dusenberry, and she is the editorial director at Feministing. And she's also the author of a phenomenal book I could not put down called Doing Harm. Welcome, Maya. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. This is such a pleasure because 
your book is phenomenal and also really consolidates the frustration and pain and feeling like of helplessness that so many of our previous guests talking about their experience in the medical system have expressed. So this is amazing to have you on and talking about these issues bigger picture. So we're really excited to have you. Thank you. Um, so to start off, this book is basically about how the medical system fails women and has historically in terms of believing their pain and treating their pain. And it just isn't set up for our success. So I want to talk a bit about your inspiration for writing the book, because you say that you wrote this book. Uh, you're inspired by your own experience with a chronic illness, rheumatoid arthritis. So how did that diagnosis inspire you? Yeah, that was really the the first impetus that started me thinking about these issues. Um, and I had actually been a feminist writer for a long time and had always written about reproductive health issues. So was in some ways kind of thinking about women's health um, through that lens. But then about five years ago, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, um, which is an autoimmune disease where the immune system starts attacking the joints. Um, and I actually had a pretty easy time getting diagnosed. I was diagnosed quickly. I was able to start treatment quickly. Uh, and in part because of that, my symptoms have been in remission since then. Um, but that really sort of inspired me to start learning a lot about autoimmune diseases um, and realizing that there they are these, this huge epidemic that affects 50 million people in the U.S. Um, 75 percent of those people are women. And as a feminist, I sort of thought that, you know, the fact that women are disproportionately impacted by them might have something to do with why they're really sort of off the public's radar. And also, I started hearing all of these stories of, of and statistics of so many autoimmune patients who would go to four doctors over four years on average and often feel like their symptoms just really weren't being taken seriously during that diagnostic delay. So that was the really the first instance inspiration for kind of thinking more broadly about these issues. But then once you kind of start talking to people, you realize, you know, that so many women have have personal stories that are very similar. You know, I started hearing from friends who, you know, had various conditions that were dismissed as depression or anxiety or just stress. Um, and so the book was really kind of an attempt to figure out the the history and the background that sort of explained why those experiences seem to be so common. Yeah, that's amazing. Especially I feel like for feminists, sometimes we think we walk around thinking the thing that just happened to us or the thing we're noticing is just happening to us until we have the opportunity to look and talk to each other and realize that what we're experiencing is part of a larger issue and mm -hmm. affects way, way more people than we ever knew. So that sounds like an example of that where it was like, oh, we don't talk enough about this. So many people yeah. have autoimmune diseases. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about the delay in diagnosis and how there are so many barriers to getting proper care. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And then you write that the gender stereotypes that come along with being female put a, dump, a double bind on female patients. So for our listeners, what is that double bind? Yeah. So I think, you know, a lot of women have this experience of feeling like um, healthcare providers kind of see them as, as emotional, see their complaints of, of pain as, as just sort of overreactions. Um, and I think this is sort of 
rooted in, in part in these gender stereotypes that we have, where we have this expectation that men remain really stoic in the face of pain and um, not admit vulnerability or weakness. And I think one of the consequences one of the consequences of that is that when they enter the medical system, there's sort of this default expectation that, you know, something must be really wrong because they're assumed to be sort of reluctant to be seeking medical care at all. Um, and a sort of corollary stereotype impacts women where because women are sort of um, seen as having more permission culturally to express their pain it somehow ends up being that their expressions of pain are, are treated as if they're sort of over-reporting or exaggerating, um, which really doesn't make too much sense when you think about it. Um, but it does leave women patients, I think, really walking this very fine line of, you know, if, if you have pain or another symptom that's subjective and you need to get across to a healthcare provider what's what's happening in your own body, you sort of have to rely on your own expression of that pain to, to make it real for them. But women often find themselves in this is catch 22 where, you know, if you're super emotional, um, you'll be written off as hysterical, but if you sort of go the opposite route and try to be really stoic, um, and kind of report your pain in the sort of stereotypically male way, um, that also doesn't often work. Cause then it's like, well, then, you know, nothing's really wrong. Like if she, if it was really bad, she would be crying and hysterical. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, yeah, I think it is this really hard double bind that, um, makes it very difficult for, for female patients to kind of present in the doctor's office and really get across the severity of their symptoms. Yeah. We had a recent episode that really touched on that, um, about endometriosis. Cause I think that is like, mm -hmm. I mean, historically you write about this in the book that is, that has such a rich history of women being considered, you know, hysterical when they were presenting mm -hmm. symptoms or that they were just being dramatic or it was something mental and or it was something like of, you know, their morals being compromised at certain points in history. That has such mm -hmm. a history of women not being believed for their physical symptoms. And uh, the person on the episode was really surprised that they would like go to the doctor and explain their symptoms. And the word endometriosis was never even presented as an option because it was like, here are all the, you know, things that it could be. It could be stress. It could be, you know, like all of these uh, just PMS pain and just dismiss your pain. Yeah. So I feel like uh, it's crazy to me that that still happens in very common illnesses and very common um ways that they're, that people are trying to present their pain. It feels like that shouldn't yeah. be happening anymore. Yeah. And it's crazy. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting The yeah, the example of endometriosis is so striking because it is so common. Um, and yet you have women go for often 10 to 12 years without getting diagnosed and are often told, you know, this is just normal menstrual cramps, even though it's, you know, very severe pain and, and other symptoms associated with it. Um, and it really kind of shows how these, this bias can really become self-perpetuating because the only reason that doctors have this impression that like menstrual pain that would bring a woman into the ER, it's so bad is somehow quote unquote normal mm -hmm. is because they keep sort of under diagnosing endometriosis and don't recognize these cases as what they are, which is not at all normal. Right. <laughs> um, an underlying disease that just is massively underdiagnosed. And so that kind of systemic underdiagnosis leads to this 
normalization of, of menstrual pain and, and menstrual symptoms that kind of affects all of us then where even, you know, even among women, I think it's often hard to kind of gauge, you know, what's normal when it comes to menstrual pain, because we have this expectation that it's all that it's totally normal to, to have pain. And I think that that's something should that should really be challenged and questioned. And, and you know, we should at least wonder whether whether any degree of, of pain associated with your period really should be considered inevitable or something that we shouldn't, you know, do research to study and figure out what, why it's happening and turn it around so that nobody experiences it. Exactly. It's also, it's so hard because within your book, you address this too. It's like, we're talking about women who have access and time and money to even get in the medical system at all, to be seen by Mm -hmm. a doctor. And then at that point, if your pain is being doubted, or if you're feeling like you're not being taken seriously, then we're talking about additional cost, time, all this stuff that like, becomes more of a burden on women to then have to advocate for themselves and to find answers. And so the there's just so many barriers and sometimes it just doesn't feel like the medical system is supporting us the way we have to like work for ourselves uh, to get properly diagnosed and treated. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's, it's been a tough question for me in these interviews, you know, everybody asks what the, what advice for individual women I have. Um, and I think, you know, it's sort of the, the standard, like, you know, get a second opinion and trust your instincts and don't let anybody dismiss you and really become this informed and, um, empowered self-advocate. But that of course should not be required. And that relying on sort of women themselves to, to, be their own advocates really leave so many women, the least privileged women, just kind of out of luck. Because as you said, it's an enormous, it requires enormous resources in terms of time and money um, to often even get a diagnosis. And, right. and that is a system that really leaves the, the least privileged just kind of invisible to the system in a lot of ways. Yeah. I, I mean, I think like, that there's examples I've heard anecdotally of women who bring in men with them to have mm-hmm. doctors believe them to be like, no, she's not lying about her symptoms. This is really what's happening. And it shouldn't just shouldn't be that way. It's unbelievable to hear yeah. stories like that. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. 
because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And something you touched on. So in the medical system, this is obviously a very intersectional issue. And there are specific biases that work against women of color, women with disabilities, trans women, older women. Basically, if you're not a cis man and you go into a doctor's office, you are probably facing a very large set of expectations and biases. Um, Mm -hmm. And you bring up women of color being less likely to receive the same pain treatment as white women. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's something measurable. And that's something that like is not deniable. So what are the the biases um, at play there? Yeah, well, I think women of color and especially black women in particular are, are very much impacted by this stereotype that that patients of color are more likely to be drug seeking and and seeking, you know, opioid prescription medications, um, which is not at all a a true stereotype. It's actually totally false. Um, But I do think that is is a really big one, especially, you know, I think especially in in an ER setting, perhaps. And um, obviously, when when the symptom that you're reporting is pain. Um, and I think that, you know, in the, in the book, one of the stories I included was a, a black woman who, even after she had a diagnosis that was, you know, a serious disease, um, when she would enter the ER for pain, she often wouldn't even be able to get past those, those gatekeepers to get into the ER because that assumption that she was just drug seeking was so automatic that they wouldn't even listen to her when she, you know, told them what she had, told them who her doctors were. Um, so that's a really big one, but you know, the, the sort of research on racial disparities in pain treatment, um, even extend to children, you know, and, and so I think that there, there are maybe some other, other sort of root reasons for that. And, and some researchers have theorized that it might be rooted in sort of this sense that black patients are, ha- have like a superhuman, um, vul- invulnerability to pain and, and, Researchers have sort of traced this back to like really, really old stereotypes from, you know, the days of slavery when when sort of claims about um, biological differences between the races were used to justify experimenting on enslaved people. And, um, you know, I think that these days probably it's not, you know, a consciously held view like that. But I think that there is evidence that some of that that sense of biological difference does make its way into to the undertreatment of, of black patients specifically. Yeah. And it feels like that sort of racism, racism, if it's not dealt with in the medical system, you know, from when you're a resident and watching the doctors above you and learning how they administer pain medicine, like it feels like it's sort of like any form of racism where it some generation needs to like stop the next one from learning or from mm-hmm. just repeating the same mistakes. So I don't know if there's any way for the medical system to address these biases larger scale or like if there's a place for this maybe in some sort of curriculum that every future doctor has to have, like if there's some sort of education or some piece of somewhere along the line of like when you learn these are the biases that have existed and these are where they stop right yeah I mean I think that's exactly what needs to happen and I I think there is 
there is certainly more interest in recent years in, in looking at implicit biases and, and how they play out in medical care. Um, and, you know, I, I think in particular places, some efforts to, you know, improve the education around those that in the, in the medical education. Um, but yeah, I think that that, that just, you know, as, as I talk about in the book, one of the big challenges for a lot of the issues that I discuss is that it takes such a long time to change medical education. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to really kind of make a wholesale change, you know, at every school across every curriculum requires a lot of kind of top down political will, you know, um, to make that happen. And, and, but absolutely, I think that that should, the medical profession should feel a responsibility to, to, as you say, just sort of say this, these are old, old biases that have been replicated generation by generation, but we have it within our power to say, we're going to stop and do everything in our power to turn that around. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels like it's a huge ship that maybe can't be all like steered at once, but it's going down to the each medical institution, medical school and saying like, this is part of the education. This is part of the curriculum and it needs to, it needs to stop now. And in terms of what you just said, in terms of things being really slow to change, I feel like with the mainstream conversation on women's health, it really feels like we have not moved past the 1960s. Like we're still talking about abortion rights. We're still talking about contraception coverage and all of the stuff that goes beyond that feels like a luxury that we don't have time or energy to discuss. Like I still, I cannot believe we are having such rudimentary debates about (laughs) reproductive rights in 2018. And it just, it's infuriating. And I was wondering what are some of the issues you would love to be discussing in 2018 when it comes to women's health? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you put that really well. And, and especially for somebody like me who had a background in reproductive health advocacy, advocacy. And, you know, of course, I, I, I believe very strongly that contraception and abortion access should be a sort of central part of the feminist movement. But I do think that, you know, some of these other issues have become sort of overshadowed just because that kind of reproductive health care has become so politicized. There's always so much to fight uh, externally on that front that it sort of takes the focus away from looking at the sort of internal problems within the medical system. Um, and yeah, it really does, I think, lower our standards where we're sort of <laughs> defending our right to have birth control at all and have it covered by insurance. And instead, we're not saying, you know, well, is, are the birth control options that we have, you know, 60 years after the pill was invented, really the best we could do? Could we maybe come up with some, right. some new forms, you know? Um, so, I mean, that's one thing I think, you know, that I would love to be talking about instead, you know, like, what are the, what sort of an innovation could we think about in terms of reproductive health, if we weren't just constantly on the defensive? Um, I think, you know, Relatedly, part of that focus on reproductive health has led to this sort of conflation of reproductive health with women's health that really does kind of overlook the fact that there are other conditions like autoimmune diseases, a lot of chronic pain conditions that disproportionately affect women and and should be sort of seen as women's health issues as well. 
Um, and that there are also, you know, diseases like heart disease and many other conditions that affect men and women differently in, in often and, and that education on that and, and an awareness of that needs to be a part of what we think about when we think about women's health. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there are so many, and, you know, and then you bring, bring in all of the kind of problems with just access to, to medical care. I think that's another thing that sort of takes up a lot of the conversation just because it is, of course, so important. But, you know, if you kind of start to imagine, you know, if, if everybody actually had good insurance and we had universal health care, mm-hmm. you know, how then what would the conversation be about the quality of that care, you know, and the doctor-patient relationship and some of these things that I get into in the book? Um, so I think, yeah, there are just obviously... <laughs> so many things to fix in this system. It's hard to know exactly where to start. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, too, like something that has really struck me is the more so I had my own experience with not being believed by a doctor having my symptoms dismissed. And I started to talk to other women who had experienced the same thing and hearing about all of their ailments and hearing about on this podcast, all the different afflictions, anyone with a vagina and or uterus and or just being a woman uh, would have and realizing how little I know, like I recently learned about vaginismus. I didn't really know much about endometriosis. I don't know much about autoimmune disease. It just feels like we're so stuck on having to be on the defensive, as you said, for reproductive rights and access to healthcare. that there are so many issues that I feel like should be mainstream knowledge. And a lot of people walk around not knowing that their pain is associated with something that could even be diagnosed because we don't have the, you know, space to like educate everyone on all the issues. We're just so stuck on the defensive. Uh, yeah, yeah. I get worked up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, you touched on this earlier, but I do think that there's a sort of silence about these experiences um, that leads women to sort of assume that it's just me or that, you know, their experiences being dismissed. Um, was just sort of bad luck or that maybe even that they should have done something to advocate for themselves more. Um, and it really does sort of take that experience of starting to talk about it with other people and realize that other people have the same story to kind of break out of that, um, and see it, see it as not these individual experiences, but part of this, these larger patterns and, you know, to make, connections with other women who have the same disease, I think has been really powerful. And obviously, that's so much easier these days with the internet and these robust online patient communities. And, you know, I think we're seeing a sort of trend of younger women, especially sort of writing about their experiences with something like vulvodynia or other conditions that have been sort of in the shadows, I think, in past generations. But there's a more of a kind of openness to kind of talk about those things that I think has has been and will continue to be really helpful in sort of breaking that silence and making those connections. Exactly. It's also funny because I feel like women sometimes go online, they find what they have. They're like, oh, duh, this is what it is. And you can still go to the doctor and they kind of can roll your eyes because it's like, oh, they looked it up on WebMD, sort of like there's probably like a bit of resentment that can build. But, you know, we have to do our own research. It just is the way it is. And like, I have a an idea for an app that I have no idea how to build or how to do, but it would just be called 
cool female gynecologist and you could <laughs> open the app and just say, here's what I'm going through. Here's my deal. And then they would just say, here's your diagnosis. And you wouldn't have to go to like the forums and try to filter through the information. Yeah, so, if, you know, if like Elon Musk decides to help us out, I mean, free idea, please make it for all yeah. of us. <laughs> um, I think also what you were just touching on with uh, people being believed in like these bigger uh, conversations. I think a great example in your book of the power of when women do collectively organize and share information is what you talk about with ovarian cancer, because for so long, that was dubbed a silent killer. And it was fascinating to read that women were actually reporting symptoms to their doctors for decades, and they were still being dismissed because this idea that ovarian cancer was a silent killer was the prevalent thought. And so all of those, um, th there was like a big advocacy movement where a bunch of people were able to finally change that perception. I'm not, not explaining well. It's a very beautiful chapter. <laughs> You're much better writer than I am speaker. But it was basically like there were women who organized. It sounds like a lot of that was, was that like online that they were starting to um, organize? Is that how they got together? This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, yeah. I think it was, um, yeah. So it was basically, there was this silent killer idea that was taught in all of the meds medical textbooks and in med schools um and yeah it was especially once there became sort of online patient forums women started talking about their experiences getting diagnosed and realized that many of them had been reporting symptoms and had even gone to doctors about those symptoms but had been told you know no, no, you know, they weren't not, not only that they weren't diagnosed on the basis of those symptoms, but then when they were diagnosed with ovarian cancer, when they would go back and say, oh, well, you know, that abdominal bloating must have been a symptom, their doctors would say, oh, no, 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 well, it couldn't possibly have been because ovarian cancer doesn't cause symptoms. So it was this totally circular logic um, that was kind of driving the women crazy. <laughs> and they were talking amongst themselves online, but it wasn't actually until this patient conference where they approached a uh, doctor, a physician, um, about doing research, actual kind of official research where they sent out a survey and, and then that was published and um, that, that the medical system really sort of started listening to them um, and kind of saw their self-reports finally as as something that sort of counted and finally put to rest that silent killer idea. That's crazy. I was going to ask if you feel like there are, um, you know, 
illnesses now that you feel could have some sort of collective energy and impact where that needs to happen, where people need to be listened to? I mean, maybe it's just autoimmune diseases and chronic illnesses like that in general. It feels like there's now a shift in awareness and that is, a, you know, a general category where more advocacy could help uh, get more recognition in the medical community. Yeah. Um, I think there's, you know, so many, I do, I do think autoimmune diseases are, a, a good one to focus on just because there is evidence that, that they're increasing, um, rates are increasing over the past few decades. So I think it will continue to be a problem. Um, and I think could use more research. Um, also, you know, all the sort of what I call kind of contested illnesses or diseases formerly known as hysteria in the <laughs> book, because these are, you know, poor, really poorly understood conditions that have been kind of assumed to be psychosomatic for decades. And so because of that, a lot of there hasn't been a lot of research into them. Um, so things like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome, chronic Lyme, um, you know, these are things that really we haven't even made much of an attempt to understand so kind of calling for research and, and um, I think, you know, it's just like such low hanging fruit because mm -hmm. there has been so little that I think we can learn a lot um, pretty quickly if we actually just invested in it. Yeah. And so if someone were to, wa to want to influence the medical system, um, do you have ideas on the best way to go about that on how to make change? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it kind of depends on where you're located and what kind of power or influence you have. Um, you know, I, I think that I'm a big believer across the board in, in telling your story. And um, I think this is an area where personal stories can be really powerful, uh, in part for some of the reasons we've talked about already, where, you know, just just kind of helping women themselves and see that their experiences are similar to others and are rooted in these larger problems, I think will kind of help empower women as individuals to push back if they are feeling dismissed and to, to become a little bit more skeptical of medical authority, which I think is, is needed. Um, but also because I think that this is a problem that is at this point pretty off the the radar of the medical profession. And I think that, you know, a lot of doctors just don't realize how often it is that they're, you know, making diagnostic errors or being really dismissive. And, um, you know, one of the really interesting things I learned in my research was about just diagnostic errors in general and how experts who are, have started studying them really point out that, um, it's not that individual doctors are, you know, super arrogant. It's just that they don't, there's no system in place so that doctors learn when they've made a mistake. So mm -hmm. if you have an autoimmune auto patient go to four doctors before she's properly diagnosed, when she finally is diagnosed, the first few doctors she saw don't get a memo. Mm. And so they come away with this impression that she really was just, you know, stressed out or, whatever they, it was that they decided about her. Um, so that's really helpful, I think, in, in understanding how this can, problem can be sort of self-perpetuating, um, but I think also kind of points to an area where 
there's a lot of potential for change. If, if we did have those feedback systems in yeah. place, I think it would be helpful. And, and I think that just telling our own stories can be at least a part of that, that feedback to, to at least show, you know, this, this is a problem. This is happening. This is pervasive in the medical system. Um, you know, just kind of spurring people even to start talking amongst themselves or talking to their friends and family about these experiences. That's so I had thought about the feedback system. That is so smart, too, because it makes so much sense. Even if you do consistently see the same doctor, they are seeing so many patients. And I am sure like at the end of the day, don't even know what they said or who they saw. Like they just must be running through, especially if your access is like, let's say you're going to urgent care or you're in like a big medical system where you're just assigned a doctor and there's no follow up. Like there, there mm-hmm. is no feedback system to say, Hey, they went to three more doctors and finally got this as the diagnosis. You should look into it. That is right. so true. And for, I feel, you know, what's frustrating too is like sometimes women will just go, well, I'm just not, it's expensive and it's time consuming. I'm not even going to go to a second doctor. I'm just going to tough it out or figure it out. And then it's just like, you just lose faith in the whole medical system. So yeah, a feedback system makes so much sense if that, if that could be implemented. Wow. I love that. Um, and I guess I just have to ask if it's even worth asking, how does gender bias in the medical system negatively affect men if it does? And if we care? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, I do care. Um, I think it, you know, one of the big problems I talk about in the book is this knowledge gap when it comes to women's health that is in part because we as a medical system have not really kind of prioritized conditions that especially impact women but also there's this knowledge gap because we haven't paid attention to the possibility that there could be sex or gender differences um, in, in people's experience of the same disease. And so, you know, it's only in the last 25 years, really, that we've sort of made sure that women are included in clinical research and, and have at least made some progress on, on sort of um, shifting research standards so that more and more researchers are, you know, analyzing their results by gender, um, you know, and it's by no means perfect. And and there's still a lot to be done on that front. But I think that one of the things that has come out of that research over the last 25 years is that in, in so many cases, you know, whether it's in drug response and side effects or in, you know, the symptoms of the same disease and risk factors, there are these differences. And so I think that especially now that we're kind of including both men and women usually in our studies, like not paying attention to that really has the potential to negatively impact both genders, you know, and, and, um, also just is, is kind of intellectually, um, a loss if we're not, you know, looking at these differences, um, can be a really important clue to understanding how the human body works and, mm-hmm. and kind of spurring new questions and, um, or new, you know, new treatments. There's just, there's so much that I think has been lost by the fact that we have kind of just focused our attention on, on one half of the population. Um, and, you know, I think that all of us sort of stand to pe- the benefit by stopping that and, and having a more, 
um, gender balance kind of look at, at, at how the human body works. Yeah, and, um, totally. Yeah. Cause especially yeah. the specific example of heart disease that you bring up where men and women were displaying different symptoms. It was manifesting in completely different ways. And for years, women would just get dismissed from the hospital for saying mm-hmm. they had these certain symptoms. It's like, oh, it's anxiety. Oh, it's stress. They had heart disease. So even if like for no other purpose, but just to understand how heart disease works, it makes sense that right. we would look at the bio, the the specific ways that it manifests in different sexes. So yeah, that makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure also like what you mentioned in the beginning, how there's an expectation on men being stoic and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Like I'd imagine that it might be a whole different set of issues with like men experiencing pain and expressing pain and like all of that. That's probably a whole other thing that I could never, yeah, understand. Um, (laughs) So yeah, all of this is great. I feel like this book should be required reading for every person who, I mean, for every person, but also like if you have ever been doubted or wondered if you're alone, this book is so helpful in understanding the bigger things. And while, like you mentioned, there's not really great advice for individuals about how to deal with it in the medical system, it is helpful to go in knowing and have your radar up so that if mm-hmm. you start to feel like your doctor isn't listening or doubting you or there's something off, to trust that because you realize, oh, okay, this is not about me. This is not about my situation. There's probably something bigger at play here. And at least knowing that makes you feel a lot more comforting in a very frustrating, uh, comforted in a frustrating situation. So mm-hmm. at the very least, there's that. And also I feel like it's good advice for people to know about this because we do it to each other too. I feel like we've been somewhat socialized. We have a weird relationship to people who talk about pain. We don't, it's mm. really hard to empathize with pain. Like if someone mm-hmm. expresses it, we can't really, we don't really know how to feel it in our own body. We don't really know what they're talking about. And so this book is also really great because it just, the amount of experiences that we can be more empathetic to and uh, trusting each other, I think it makes really good points about that too. And just seeing all the barriers that we face and being believed in general. So yeah, I love that. Yeah. Well, it's I great. sure hope so. Yeah. That's a great point. It's awesome. Um, so thank you so much for being here, Maya. If people want to uh, reach out to you or follow you, where would you direct them? Um, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Maya Dusenberry. Um, and you can find links to buy the book at my website, which is mayadusenberry.com. Awesome. Thank you. And definitely all the listeners check out Doing Harm. It's an awesome book. And uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.